Uh, Kev just mentioned that um, you know, we're really keen that our core beliefs about who Jesus is, who he says we are, um, that those core beliefs shape us, that they're really significant. And we have a core belief that comes straight from Scripture, comes straight from Jesus, that God's desire is to work in us and through us. That's his desire, to work in us and through us. As we give our lives to him, he will work in us and through us so that his mission in the world starts to get unpacked and unfolded and God starts to see the vision of what he has for us as humanity, as his creation. So keep that in mind. Um, As Kev just said, and hopefully you've got one in your hand if you didn't get one last week or you can see it on the screens, that the the focus for this year, the focus that's just going to give us some um, framework for what we're doing and where we're going is... This, this phrase out of 1 Corinthians 9. I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. Sorry about that little echo that's going on. They'll, they'll sort that out. Now, what we want to do over today and the next couple of weeks, just prior to Easter, is to unpack a little bit of what this means. And so today I want to look at just the last two words. What does it mean to save some? What does it mean to save some? If you've been journeying with us in January and February this year, we've been looking at the idea that we are on mission with God, that God's mission is what he's doing in the world, and that there's a harvest ready to be brought into the kingdom of God. And an image of the harvest being ready is that there are people who are lost and they need saving. And as Kev just beautifully reminded us at the beginning here, that there's this essence that Jesus has already done what's required. God has already reconciled us to himself through Christ. So people, every single human being that is alive on the planet at the moment, they are already reconciled to God. There is, this, there is an invitation to step into that becoming a reality. And so... We know that, um, just looking at how Jesus explained this, there are people who are lost, and I can stand here and say, I once was lost. And the people who are still lost at the moment need saving. That's God's heart towards them. So I was reminded of a couple of things I've read just over the last little while. Um, Just recently, there was a surfer who was found six, six kilometres off the south coast of New South Wales, off Wollongong, by a cargo ship. He was just out there floating. And they rescued him. And he sort of explained, well, I just sort of paddled out to commune with nature. I didn't think there was anything wrong. I didn't think I needed rescue. I didn't think I was in trouble, but didn't realise he was in this current that was just taking him away from the mainland. He was out there for 16 hours. Didn't realise he needed rescuing until the people who rescued him pointed out his situation and I was like, oh, okay. You know, some people don't know that they're lost and they need saving. Others actually refuse to believe they need saving. I can remember a story, it was a few years ago now, there was floods down on the south coast, and I think it was Cowra, and there was an elderly guy who 
went through a flooded crossing in his vehicle, got trapped, the vehicle was nearly overturned and the SES turned up and for six hours they tried to convince him that he needed saving and he was telling them to go away, I'm okay. Stuck in his vehicle that's about to tip over, flooded waters and he's going, no, I'm okay, I don't need saving. There are some people who just don't know that they need saving. There are some people who don't know that they're lost and they need saving. So when I look at all this and start thinking about what does it mean to save some, I reckon there are two key motivations that help us step into this. Two key motivations. The first one is an awareness of our own condition that we were once lost and now we are saved. There's probably a song you're familiar with that talks about that. It's called Amazing Grace. I'm not going to sing it. But one of the lines is that I am not going to sing it. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Now, we don't use the word wretch too often these days. A rat bag. And I once was lost, but now I'm found. And, that, and that's the condition of humanity. And so if you're sitting here this morning or you're online or, or up, up at Tumby, and you are a follower of Jesus, this is your story. You were once lost, but now you are found. You were once lost, but you have accepted Christ's invitation to step into that reconciled life with God. And then those who haven't yet accepted that invitation are still in that state of lostness. And many of them don't know that's the case. And some who may have heard that that's the case might be at the point where they refuse that. So I want to look at our passage where our focus comes from today, but just before we get there, Paul wrote a letter to Timothy and talks about this issue. Look at what he says to Timothy. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, this is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them all, but God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst of sinners. Then others will realise that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. It's a pretty good picture that Paul paints that I once was in that state of lostness and I've had an encounter with the risen Jesus and now I can freely accept that gift that he has offered me, that life with God is possible and Jesus has done everything required to make that possible and I accept that as a free gift and then as a result of accepting that gift, I start to live into that. That's what we're talking about as being Christian, as being a follower of Jesus. So I think firstly, if we're to save some, we need to have that awareness that we were once lost and now we've been found and that that's the state many people find them in, find themselves in. And so there's that, that just, uh, you, you can relate to where somebody is. And the second thing I think, the second motivation that we need is just a love or a compassion for those around us that reflects God's love. And we've talked about this a couple of times in the last few weeks. If we could see people with eyes of compassion if we could see people the way God sees them, then we would do anything we possibly could to get to the point where we can introduce them to who Jesus is, to tell them that God loves them, that God's done everything necessary to bring them into that, 
salvation that, that we're talking about. And we would want to do that out of our love and compassion. This is a pretty familiar verse to many of you. But just look at it with fresh eyes. So this is how God loved the world. The world meaning humanity. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. Quite often we'll look at John 3.16 but not look at 17. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. So we don't know who's going to respond to the invitation of salvation from God. Therefore, I think we just need to have a healthy way to see the people around us that they are a beloved child of God the Father. And God's desire for that person in front of us is that they would accept the invitation into a life with him. That it's not about they've got to sort themselves out first to, to get to a point where God's happy with them. No, God already loves every single one of us and the invitation is there and we are carriers of that invitation. So, when I look at the church in the world today and some estimations would say that the church has, across all denominations, maybe about 2 billion people in the Christian church today, out of over 7 billion people in the world, there's still a lot of people who who have not yet heard of Jesus or accepted that invitation to step into a life with God through Christ. So what do I know about this? Well, I know, reading Scripture, that many will be saved. Many will be saved. When when you look at what's happening right at the end, the book of Revelation, chapter 7, look at this. This is John, the Apostle John, having a revelation of what's happening um, towards the end of... Um, you know, this era, this time, this world. And he says, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And the Lamb here refers to Jesus, Jesus crucified. Now that's a pretty big number if no one can count it. That's a lot of people who have accepted that invitation of salvation. But I also know that many will choose to reject the invitation that God offers. Because Jesus said this, he said, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. So where does this leave me? We're looking at our focus saying that, you know, we're going to do everything we can to save some. And I can look at Scripture and I go, there are going to be many who are saved. And there are going to be many who reject the invitation of salvation. So I want to just stand square on the sovereignty of God, that God's going to do what God's going to do. And God's invitation is there for every person. And we are carriers of that invitation but God will not force himself on anyone. We have a choice in this. God's choice is already, yes, welcome. We have a choice to respond to that invitation. We as people.
Now we've got to remember that God has left his church, his disciples, the followers of Jesus, with the responsibility to go and share with those who are lost that offer and invitation of salvation. So we're called to give our lives to God so he will work in us and through us so that some may be saved. How many are going to be saved? I don't know. I think Jesus got to the point of this too because he was asked that same question. In Luke's Gospel, look what Jesus says about this issue. So he, being Jesus, went on teaching from town to village and village to town, but keeping a steady course towards Jerusalem. And a bystander said, Master, will only a few be saved? And Jesus' response, whether few or many is none of your business. Put your mind on your life with God. The way to life, to God, is vigorous and requires your total attention. We don't need to get caught up in the numbers game. We don't get, need to get caught up in who's in and who's out. We simply need to be obedient to what Jesus has called us to do and that's to carry that message, that invitation to those around us. We are not responsible for how people respond to that invitation. That's God's business. But as his representatives, as his ambassadors, as his church, as his children, as his family, we are taking that message with us wherever we go. So let's explore what it looks like for us to save some. So here's the passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 9 from which we have taken the focus verse out. And here's the few verses that sort of sit around that. So starting in verse 19, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And he says, Even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. And when I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. And when I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. Let's get that up on the screen, please. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. And when I'm with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and to share in its blessings. So prior to this little part, now remember Paul didn't set his letter out in chapters and verses, he just wrote a letter. Okay, so prior to him saying this, he was talking about the freedom that he has in Christ the freedom that is there for all of us. And he was using some very specific examples of how that freedom has worked out. He was talking about the issues of eating food and what food's all right to eat and what food's not and the issue of working. And so he's, he's come to this church as an apostle. Now, apostle was like, if there was a hierarchy in the early church, the apostle was at the top. The apostle was someone who had met Jesus, who had seen Jesus, who had heard Jesus. And so there was a real authority for the apostles. And so Paul was saying, 
he's renounced his right as an apostle. He wasn't going to lord it over these people. In fact, he was going to serve them. And this, Paul says, brings freedom. Now, I think when we hear the word freedom, a common way we think about that is that true freedom is being for us and from others. So what I mean by that, we might think that true freedom is that I can do things for myself the way I want to do it, when I want to do it, and it's freedom from someone else telling me what to do or some institution or some government or some you know, body of authority. And we often think that freedom is for me from others. And Paul flips that on his head, on its head, and he basically says, real freedom is from myself for others. True freedom comes to the point where I don't have to get my own way whenever I want it. True freedom is I have the disposition to serve the person in front of me for their sake. That's true freedom. And so freedom, he goes on and uses his language, freedom to become a slave. Freedom to have others become my boss. That is completely 180 degree of, of how we often think about freedom. So, with that in mind, let's look at what he has said here. So, when he's with the Jews, he's saying, I lived like a Jew. Why? To bring the Jews to Christ. In other words, to save some of the Jews. And when I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. And even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. In other words, to save some of the people who live under the law. So Paul's saying, I could, I could express my freedom here and say, I don't have to do that. But he's saying, but I chose to do it because it's going to connect with the people who are doing that. I can become a slave to them. I can position myself as a servant to them, not someone who thinks I'm above them. And then he says, with the Gentiles, so that's those who are not Jewish, with the Gentiles who don't follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so I can bring them to Christ. I get a picture of a chameleon. It's not like Paul could be whoever he needed to be to connect with the people he was with. Now, I don't know what's going on in your head when I say that because there, there's a tension now to go in a particular way to go, what does that mean? Does that mean I, if I'm hanging out with people who are criminals, I become a criminal? That's not what Paul's saying. He's basically saying if we are to save some, there are times when we will have to position ourselves to forego our own rights and our own freedoms for the sake of the gospel and the person in front of us. By letting others decide his manner of living, whether he's with the Jews or those under the law or the Gentiles or whatever, letting others decide how he was to go about his day actually changed his life according to the company that he was in. That's what he did. And he discovered real freedom to be with people. Why? To win them to Christ, to see some of them saved. I found this really uncomfortable when I started unpacking this. I don't know if you're feeling uncomfortable at the moment. 
It's actually about accommodating ourselves to those around us. Not rejecting them, not ignoring them, not having this this inner piety that says I'm better than them so I'm not going to associate with them. All we have to do is think about Jesus. You go, he did this. You've got humanity who's completely messed up and God himself, God himself came into humanity as a human being. There's a great passage you're probably familiar with in Philippians chapter 2 where the same author, Paul, understands this and he says, he says, is there any encouragement from belonging to Jesus Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Holy Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate towards others? Then make me happy, Paul says to this church, by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not consider equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. And it continues on. Jesus modelled for us what it looks like to step into life with people who do not yet know him. He modelled for us what that looks like. He instructs us to have an others first mindset. He instructs us to have the mindset of becoming a slave, serving the other person, not lording it over them. So what we're talking about here is is, is living as a witness to life with God. This kind of approach that Paul has just described for us in 1 Corinthians 9 and in Philippians 2 and in many other passages actually, Paul says that this approach is completely others-focused. And it's self-sacrificing. We sacrifice, we give up, we defer to others our attention and our time and our energy and our desires and our resources and our very selves for the sake of others that they would at least hear about God's good news where he says, I have already reconciled myself to you. There is an invitation of grace and mercy. It's yours if you want it. So looking at this same passage in a paraphrase, in the message paraphrase, look at some of the language. So even though I'm free of the demands and expectations of everyone, I have voluntarily become a servant to any and all 
in order to reach a wide range of people. There's the religious, the non-religious, the meticulous moralists, the loose-living immoralists, the defeated, the demoralised, whoever. And I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. I've become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I meet into a God-saved life. I did all of this because of the message. I didn't just want to talk about it, I wanted to be in on it. There's something really beautiful about the, the phrasing of that passage. And so just to confirm, just so you're not hearing something that I'm not saying, just to confirm, Paul is saying really clearly, he did not take on their way of life. But he did enter their world and tried to see things and try to experience things from their perspective, from their point of view. Because when we can do that, we're actually in a really good position to be able to know how to present the good news to them. Once we get to know some people who are lost and we understand what their life looks like and we understand what they value and what they think is true, we are positioned to present the good news in a unique way for that specific situation. Paul says he would go as far towards somebody as he could without sinning without stepping into things that are just not right. And it's funny, Jesus did this. How often do we read that the religious elite, those who were looked at as being morally upright, complained about who Jesus was hanging out with? Even to the point where at one point Jesus was accused of being a drunk and a glutton because of who he was associating with. But we know Jesus stepped into those things and did not sin, did not do the wrong thing. Actually shone a light in the darkness to show people the goodness of God, that God is available, that God has invited us in. Paul is saying in this passage, we have the freedom to let go of our right to separate ourselves from others. They were not to feed that pride that can easily pop up, that convinces us that we are better than other people. That us moral Christians are so much better than some of those people whose life is a mess. So easy for us to take that approach in our thinking. But we can't. Jeff unpacked this two weeks ago with that story of the lost son. Remember the older brother? The older brother had contempt for the younger brother and how he lived his life. We cannot have love and compassion for people if we have contempt for them. And this is confronting because none of us want to freely admit that we often look at people and have contempt for them. Be free to be like other people, Paul's saying, serving them, loving them, showing them what a life with God looks like. And by doing that, the result is that some will be saved. And that's what we're called to do. Some people don't know that they're lost and need saving, like the guy who was on his board six k's from shore. 
Some people refuse to believe that they need saving, like the elderly man stuck in his car in the flood. So how do we step into this? You know, for, for some people in your world who may at one point have expressed a faith in Jesus or, or grown up with an understanding of, of God and, and, and what Jesus has done in the church, for some people in your world, we may need to be just really direct with them. For most people I'm expecting, though, we just have to invest in relationship. We have to put in the time. We have to develop relational credibility to have those faith conversations. But for all people, we have to love them. We have to serve them, help them, volunteer with them, invite them, be present with them. That's the incarnation in itself. It's God being present with his people. And then when Jesus himself in a physical body ascended into heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit. So God is still with us as we do the things he's calling us to do. And all of this is just so God's mission is starting to unfold so that some would be saved. I can stand here as someone who knows I've been saved. And if I've truly been saved and it's truly good news and it's truly life-changing, why would I hide that from others? Why would I refuse to share that? Why would I ignore opportunities that pop up to actually share that good news? It doesn't make sense. So let us find common ground with those around us so that we can see some saved. How about I pray for us as we do that? So Jesus, as, as we've heard a little bit of your heart for your people, I have a sense that it's, it's confronting, that it's quite often not, not what we're used to doing or not what we've heard the Christian life is about. I pray that through your scripture, through your spirit, that you would really reinforce for us what you are about in this world and what you are inviting us into as we do life with you on your mission. God, I pray for courage for those of us who need courage. I pray for opportunities to share the good news that you have already reconciled yourself to all people and that through your forgiveness and through your grace and through your mercy, people are already put right with you and some just don't know it yet and need to be invited into that. But most of all, God, I pray that you would, you would be at work in us as individuals, as families, as your church, that we would understand the message that we carry, the urgency of that message, of your heart behind that message, 
that you would give us eyes to see the people around us with love and compassion the way you see them. And that just as I started this morning to really live into the reality that your desire is to be at work in us and through us so that some would be saved. Jesus, I ask you this morning, today, to continue to work in us. To remove the things that are not true, the things that hold us back. And God, transform us into the kind of people who represent you, who love others, who live our lives devoted to serving those around us. With what little we have, we offer that to you and say, would you have your way in us? Amen.